0: Christianity is a fight. It's difficult to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, if you would agree with that, I think it's meant to be a fight. It's meant to be difficult. The first bishop of Liverpool, a man named J.C. Ryle, about 100 years ago, he once preached a sermon in which he said this, true Christianity is a fight. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world, which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster, it satisfies sleepy consciences, but it is not good money. There are thousands of men and women who go to church every Sunday, but you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife, and exertion, and conflict, and self-denial, and watching, and warring. They know literally nothing at all. Conflict, self-denial, exertion, warring, determination. I wonder how many of those words fit your experience of Christianity. You might not be a Christian, but I doubt very much that your opinion of Christianity is that it is a gritty, hardcore faith for the resolute and determined. The image, the popular image of Christianity is not that. It's that Christianity is for wimps, for cowards who check out of embracing nothingness and need a God. It's not just that that's the popular image. It's that often in church, exertion and conflict are missing from the experience of a Christian's life. Or, if they're not missing, when someone experiences difficulty in their faith, or when someone feels dry, we use that language of feeling dry, not being aware of God's presence, God's love, finding things difficult as a believer, my experience is that many of us feel like something's wrong with our faith, that we're not doing it right, Right. We're obviously not putting the right potions in or saying the right prayers. We're obviously not doing this enough. We're obviously not rubbing the right lucky charms. We're not singing our songs loud enough if things are difficult. It's often how we can feel, isn't it? It's is for me. I'm quite shocked at myself, actually, at how quickly my thoughts tend towards atheism when I experience difficulty. Life doesn't go as I want it to. There must not be a God. I prayed that prayer and God said, no. Therefore, he doesn't exist. I see that. I, off, I behave like that. I know many of you, however, you exude determination in your Christian life. Many of you know what it is to pray for something and not give up. You know what it is to hope after something in God for a decade. You know what it is. You're inspirational in the way that you dig into God. My challenge and exhortation for us this morning is to call us to a more resilient faith and to hopefully convince you that the Christian life is meant to be difficult. It's not all about skipping and rainbows and singing songs. Jesus, when he was baptized, uh, is mentioned in all four of the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But he goes into the water, he comes up out of the water, and a voice comes from heaven, the audible voice of God. And God speaks over Jesus and says, this is my son, I love him. I'm really pleased with him. I really like this one. This is the real son. Immediately, the next verse then says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where he went 40 days without any food and at the end of it, the devil came to test him, tempt him. These two events are not disconnected the difficulty in the temptation and the wilderness and the affection and commendation of the father just moments before what if difficulty in your christian life was not a result of god distancing himself from you because he doesn't like you but distancing himself from you because he does love you the new testament says that god disciplines those who are his own children i have children of two one, on the way, in one month's time. should be fun. You're welcome to clap. It's not been hard work for me. <laughs> I was involved at the beginning. Nothing, nothing since then. Perhaps a little bit crude for a Sunday morning. But I discipline my children because I love them. I don't discipline your children. Some of your children need disciplining. I don't know this. I'm sure. But I don't discipline your children because they're not mine. I discipline my kids. Why? Because I hate them. No, (laughs) Because I love them. I play hide and seek with my kids because I want them to find me. I want them to love me. I want them to worship me. (laughs) I had kids to meet some insecurity in my own soul. (laughs) Love me. Which is fine until they hit teenagehood, right? And then it's like, please love me. (laughs) Anyway, back to the point. God disciplines those he loves. He plays hide and seek because he wants you to seek him, wants you to pursue him, wants you to go after him. Sometimes he makes finding him really quite difficult. It might surprise you as well to know that the Bible is full of the language of exertion when it comes to our faith. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the time that Jacob, who up until this point had lived a life of cheating and deceiving people, and it catches up with him, and Jacob has an encounter with God, we're told, where he wrestles with God throughout the night. At the end of the wrestling match, he, he knows he's about to lose, and he holds on to God and says, God, I won't let you go until you bless me. I won't let you go until you bless me. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 63 It starts by saying, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. In the New Testament, Jesus preaches a sermon that wasn't very popular. He didn't fill an auditorium. In fact, those that were following him left. And he turns to his 12 and says, you guys are free to go as well. And Peter, the self-appointed spokesman for the group, he says, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So in the Old Testament, you've got Jacob saying, I won't let you go. And in the New Testament, you've got Peter saying, where else can I go? Nowhere else. The language of exertion is common in the life of faith. Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, writes a letter to a church in Greece, a town called Corinth, Corinth, writes a letter 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 9, he says, I don't run the race aimlessly. I'm not living this Christian life just running around doing whatever I want. He says, I'm not boxing the air. He says, instead, I train my body. Or another translation says, I pummel my flesh. I'm determined to get what God has for me, to live a meaningful Christian life. In Philippians chapter 3, another letter that Paul writes to a church, he says to them, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. And then he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. I wonder, by that definition, how much of our or my Christianity is immature. I'll follow Jesus if the payoff is right. I'll trust God if it's easy. I'll trust God if he's as quick as answering my prayers as email. If I haven't got to wait decades to get what I want, I'll trust him. I'll, I'll trust God if I could turn up to church each Sunday and the guys at the front put on a great show and pull some rabbits out of hats and go, wow, and I go home feeling puffed up and yeah, God's good. I'll do that. Paul says, writing from prison, just to throw that in there, straining forward, forgetting, I press on. It's the language of the life of faith. Jesus, was nice, Jesus is nice. Right? Let's quote something he said. He said, if you don't pick up your cross daily, cross being the instrument of your execution or the object of shame and humiliation, if you don't pick that up daily and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Um, about that. In Ephesians 6, Paul again writes to a church, chapter 6, verse 10, says, Be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't talk about this word very much, do we? There's a devil. He hates the human race, hates the human race. We're the ones that God loves. The Bible says that when the angels sinned and rebelled against God, which is all the devil is, an angel. He's not as powerful as God anywhere near it. But when the angels sinned and fell against God, what did God do? He created hell in which to punish them. What about the human race? When we fell and when we sinned, what did he do? He sent his son to die for us to forgive us the devil hates the human race and wants nothing more than for the human race to destroy itself if you're a Christian the devil hates you more than most especially particularly in fact Peter writes a letter to a church toward the end of his life and he, he writes them and says this humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God then he says be sober minded be watchful be on your guard why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You have an enemy who's prowling, wants to take you down. Wants nothing more than for you never to come back here. Wants nothing more than for you to be offended at God because of how Christians have behaved. Wants nothing more than for you to confine thoughts about God to the immature junk drawer of your former self. Oh, that was when you were a child you believed in God. He wants nothing more than for you to do that. If you're a Christian, he wants nothing more than to neutralize you, make you insignificant, unfruitful. He wants nothing more. And actually, Peter goes on and says, resist him, stand firm in your faith. And then he encourages the church and says, you know, um, people knowing this, the same kinds of suffering that are being experienced by you are being experienced by everyone around the world. You're not on your own. Actually, some of you have turned up today feeling like you're on your own, feeling like the devil Maybe you'd use that language or maybe you'd say just life is against you. It's hard to be a Christian. You want to give up. Peter says to you, God would say to you, you're not on your own. What what you're experiencing is not unusual. You haven't got a broken version of the Christian faith if you're finding it difficult. That's what Peter says. One more verse. Galatians 5. Paul says, to another church in Turkey. You're picking up a theme here, I hope. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Brilliant. Love that verse. We'll sing songs about that verse. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So you can go to church in jeans. <laughs> you can have bands. You can dance. You can have bright lights. You can have fun. You can sing. You can, you can whatever. You're free to stand and sing. You're free to sit and listen. You're free. Great. Love that. How should we use our freedom then? Well, he says, stand firm, therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery the implication being that there are things and people wanting to enslave you and rob you of the good things that god has for you the freedom that's yours he wants to there are things people wanting to take that from you and he says stand firm standing standing firm as a christian is an active thing you can't accidentally stand firm If I walk up to someone who's not intentionally standing and push them, they'll fall over, okay? But someone who's standing firm resists me. I don't play rugby. I'm not a rugby player. You can tell I'm not a rugby player. But once I played rugby. We played rugby for this church, actually. We thought it'd be a good idea to take on the territorial army at rugby. (laughs) Yes, some of you are there. And I thought it'd be fun to join the team. I've never played rugby before. And uh, I was a sub, because frankly they were concerned that if I came on, I'd die, which wasn't unfounded in its concern I didn't know the rules but what I knew is that if I run hard enough and charge into someone hard enough I can take them down so I did someone passed me the ball and I ran as hard as I could and someone was in front of me but I thought you and me mate you've got a date with the dust and so I ran and I bounced off him and hit the ground (laughs) on the sideline in fact, I woke up in the night having to take painkillers because my ribs were hurting so much because I encountered someone who was standing firm. That's how you are to be in your Christian life. And we're talking about the heart of celebration. You know, Graham last week excellently spoke about the importance of expectation. We came and we left and we thought, I'm expecting God for you to do something wonderful. I'm going to be on the lookout for miracles. Oh, I wonder what supernatural happenings is going to occur in my life today. I wonder who I can bless, who I can pray for, how I can live expectantly. That was great for a couple of days, and nothing happened. I didn't see anyone, and someone I did see, I was too scared to talk to, so I gave up. But I'm expectant, I'm just less expectant. So now the Sunday rolls around, and my expectation was here, and is now here. Well, it will do that, unless you're resiliently pursuing and standing firm in a position and posture of expectancy. The world is not neutral about you. Your enemy's not neutral about you. Last Sunday, when you were fueled by faith and vision and expectancy, the devil didn't go, yippee, the church are expectant. How brilliant. The devil, if you like, or circumstances conspired against you to say, let's rob that expectancy. We don't want any Christians like that around. You need to be resilient. You need to hold your ground. You need to stand firm. I once went to a conference where um, it was a Christian conference. I turned up very expectant to meet with God. You got my Bible out in the worship. Come on, God, what are you saying to me? Here we go. And then, you know, someone who was doing the words operating at the back, they started to annoy me because they weren't very good at it. And there was maybe a couple of typos. And then the background to the worship wasn't, you know, slick like we have it, pretty designed by Sam Arnold, SADesign.co.uk. No, it wasn't. It was some (laughs) picture that offended my sensibilities of coolness. I thought, oh, how irrelevant is this conference or these people? They're not cool. They're not presenting the Christian faith in a contextually credible way. I can use posh words to justify my arrogance. (laughs) And my expectancy started to slide as I was distracted by the things that annoyed me. And then I turned my attention from the screen to the people on the platform. I thought well, they're not a very good singer. They don't look very cool. They don't look like they're enjoying it. I'm not. I don't believe them. And that person missed a, a note. Oh, oh well. Distracted. Heads all over the place. Guy gets up to preach. I'm not ready to listen. In fact, I'm cross checking everything he says. Distrusting everything he says. Not laughing at those jokes. They're not funny. Don't believe you when you say that. What's happening? I'm not resiliently holding on to my expectancy. I'm not looking after this. I'm not hungering after God. I'm allowing surface level things to take my attention away from the reason I'm here. Now I go to church. I go to church every Sunday. I lead a church. I, so often I can just go through the motions. Let's just get another Sunday done. Oh, we've sung this song before. Now this goes. Done like this song. It's quite boring. All right, we'll sing it anyway. Oh, a new one. That's good. That's a weird lyric. What does that mean? And I can do that. The heart of celebration is a church full of fighters who, when they come to worship God, have God in their sights. Their crosshairs are on him, saying, I want him. I want to meet with him. I want to know him. And every distraction that comes my way, push it to one side, I'm here for him. Yeah, that annoyed me. I'll write a note and I'll talk to the person during the week if I need to. But I'm here for him. That's what resilience looks like in corporate celebration as a church. You know, G.K. Chesterton once said that um, most people think that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. That's not true. In actual fact, it's been found difficult and left untried. Can't do this. Let's be resilient. The definition of resilience is this, the ability to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. And as I said, some of you are remarkably resilient in life. Your friends or your spouse call it stubbornness, but you know better. It's not stubbornness, it's resilience. You're strong. You're not easily swayed in your opinion. It's good, it's a strength. Do you apply that to your same, do you apply that strength to your Christian life as you do to the rest of your life? Are you stubbornly going after God? I'm not going to let go of you, God, until you give me what I'm after. I'm hungering after you. Imagine a church full of people like that. You might not be a Christian, but even you'd agree that a church full of people who genuinely were hungering and excited about God, that's a church worth visiting. They might have something to offer us. What does it take to get there? Well, Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, you know, above all else, primary thing. In other words, listen up, because this is key. Above all else, if you haven't heard anything else, if you've switched off and you're just updating your Facebook status, above all else, tune in now. Guard your heart. If everything you do flows out of that. The word picture here is that your heart is like a wellspring. And, it, and everything that comes from that spring is, is the product, is, is what makes up your life. You see, a lot of behaviorisms and self-help type gurus, what they'll do is they'll try to concentrate on your behavior, change your behavior, and then you'll be fine. The Bible goes a step back and says, that's not the problem, that's downstream of the spring. There's no point clearing up the pond if the spring that flows into it is dirty. So guard your heart. Now, the heart is a metaphor, obviously, In in our society, we often talk about the heart as being our emotions. But actually, biblically, the image of the heart is about more than that. It includes your emotion, but it's your core commitments and values. It's what you trust above everything else. Proverbs says, guard that. Why? Because, you see, what your heart trusts, your mind has a way of justifying. The heart trusted it. (laughs) Who am I to disagree with The core of my being. And if your mind justifies it, your emotions will end up desiring that which your brain says, this is a good idea, guys, we should do this. If your emotions desire it, it's only a matter of time before your will enacts it. The problem's back here in your heart. You didn't guard your heart. Or another way of saying is, if you trust it, you'll end up justifying it. Or if you love it, you'll end up living it. Guard, therefore, what you love. Guard the things that are most important to you. When you jab the person next to you in the ribs and tell them, you should have had your guard up. Let's check that people are awake. Jab the person in the ribs next to you and say, you should have had your guard up. Some of you are like, no thanks. Okay. Guarding your heart requires resilience and effort. Which for many of us in the church, effort and exertion, discipline, they're like dirty words. Because we're Christians who believe in and love the grace of God. And the grace of God is the unmerited free kindness and love of God. Unconditional, undeserved, love that. And we often think that free grace is opposite to hard work and effort. So when someone tells you to do something, like, oh, don't tell me to do something, that's legalism, Because we think it's opposite to grace. But that's not true. The opposite to grace is earning, isn't it? You can't pay for a free gift. That doesn't work. You're loved by God unconditionally. You can't earn that. And that's a fact, if you understood how holy God was, you'd realize how ridiculous it is to consider that you could ever earn it. No amount of good deeds could ever impress the God who created all of this. Who are you? (laughs) What's your good deed It has to be a free gift. Anyway, but hard work does have its opposite. Its its opposite is laziness. And herein lies a quadrant. And there are four different boxes in which we can live our lives. Some of you, some of us, we think that, or we might not say it, but we believe it in our heart that to be loved by God, I need to work hard. I need to impress him, right? The Trouble is, predispositionally, we might be lazy, (laughs) So we know what we need to do, but we just can't be bothered to do it. If you live like that long enough, it just produces this culture of shame and fear. You, just, you hide your faith because you just constantly feel embarrassed and ashamed about it. Or you might live over here. You think, well, I'm not lazy, but I, and so I work hard. You know, I attend every meeting I can. I pray as often as I can. I read my Bible as regularly as I can. I do, I do, I do, I do. But no amount of that will ever Get me favor before God. And so that produces a self-righteousness and a hypocrisy. Because you think you're better than the person next to you. Or worse, you realize you're not, so you have to pretend you are. <laughs> but if you're a Christian, my guess is now most of us, we, under, we, can't, we don't understand this. Because who can ever understand these things? But you're, you get this. You believe this. But still, we're just, we live in a lazy culture, right? <laughs> it encourages just licentiousness. Do whatever you want. It's okay, you're loved by God, it doesn't matter what you do. That's where we can go. It produces unfruitfulness and license. So where we want to live, guys, is here, don't we? We want to be people who love the free race of God, but we work hard in our pursuit of God. And if you do that, it produces in your life fruit. The good things that God has for you. The result of the gifts he's given you, used and stewarded well. It produces wisdom as well. Over a lifetime, you become wiser the more you walk the path of trusting and loving and knowing God and pursuing him with all your being. You become wiser. And the book of Proverbs says that this kind of diligent life produces good things in your life. The diligent, it says, are given several things. The diligent gain wealth. The diligent gain authority and stature. The diligent have their souls satisfied. And the diligent find God. You can't ask for more than that from your life. I wanna know God, I wanna find God. Well, living in this box produces, over a lifetime, the ability to know God more and increase in wisdom. Wisdom is being competent with the realities of life. Life circumstances that you can't answer with a, a test question. So, this is true, I think it is, but you might not believe me. So let's play a game. I know you're familiar with blankety blank here. You've done it recently, we'll do it again. Let's play Bible fill in the blanks. This is a verse from a letter that Paul wrote to Corinthians, in Corinth, clues in the title. He says this, I, blank, blank, than all of them, but it was not I, it was the blank of God at work within me. I'll give you a word for free. Here it is. It was the grace of God at work within me. So what are these two words? I, anyone? Worked harder, very good. Worked harder And all of them. It wasn't me, it was the grace of God within me. Paul doesn't seem to think that grace and hard work are opposed to one another. In fact, he seems to think that his hard work is a result of God's grace to him. One more. Well, two more. Next one. Here we go. The something of God teaches me to say, oh, gave you a word there, to something, something, to unrighteousness. The something of the grace of God teaches me to redefine unrighteousness because I'm loved by God. I can call. I don't have to call a spade a spade. I can call it a gardening implement. I can redefine things and change things as much as I like. Because what is sin? It's just various shades of opinion, isn't it? God might say it's bad, but I'm loved by God, and therefore I can call it what I like. I can redefine sin. The grace of God teaches me not to redefine unrighteousness, but to say no to unrighteousness. I appreciate this is like... The worst if you're not a Christian and you just turned up at church, you think these guys are weird. This is like the worst quiz ever. <laughs> Where's the general knowledge round? I know, it's okay, sorry about that. One more though, because we love it. Because <laughs> we're justified by our knowledge and how impressive we are. Something the good, something of faith. What does he say? What? Fight <laughs> fight the good fight of faith. Sparta. Fight the good fight of faith. Again, language of exertion, of resilience, of determination, of vigour. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia stories, he said this, Christianity is a fighting religion. Let's be clear. We're not talking about fighting people. Things have been done in the past, haven't they, in the name of Christianity that have fought against people, and they are an abhorrence and an offence to God. Okay. True Christianity is the, it takes after the image of its originator, Jesus, who loved the poor and the oppressed. And when he was given the opportunity to fight for himself, what did he do? He handed himself in to be killed. Okay. So the purest form of Christianity, fighting, is not fighting people. Paul says that we don't fight against people, flesh and blood, we fight against the principalities and powers of this dark world that are against God. Let's just be clear on that. Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks that God made the world, that space and time, he says, heat and cold, and all the colours and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head, like a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that God, sorry, it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists and insists very loudly an hour putting them right again. God is on a mission to put the world right and he wants you to join him. But to join him requires guts, determination over a long haul. You can't just have someone lay their hands on you and experience power and have no problems again for the rest of your life. You can't go to some conference and just be transformed instantly in a moment into this fully-fledged, mature believer. No. What is it James says, the book of James? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance when it's run its course will make you perfect, lacking in nothing. Perseverance, determination, resilience. It's what's what's required. (laughs) Goody. I love resilience. I love digging in. I'm not very good at it quit very easily I think I live in a culture my generation and younger I think we are raised in a society and in a way that just encourages kind of apathy and instant fix Christianity I want my spirituality well, like I want my food fast I want to grow in God instantly now I want answers to prayer before I pray them that would be great thank you did you get my memo God Last year we had um, a friend live with us, uh, who many of you will know, Mzizi from Zimbabwe. And um, Mzizi is from Zimbabwe, and as a result of those things, we can't hold it against him. He likes chicken. He likes a lot of chicken, and we would eat chicken a lot together as a family when Mzizi was there. And we would buy chicken, chicken on the bone, because we ate so much. We needed to buy the cheapest chicken we could, <laughs> so we bought chicken on the bone, and we would have dinner together often. And I would eat my chicken in the way that my mother taught me. I would take the meat off and some of the fat but not too much else and leave it on the side very politely saying, yeah, I've done with my chicken, thank you. And then I'd look at his plate and think, I had not eaten my chicken at all. (laughs) Because then Zizi had got his bone and bit off the gristle and the the sinews and tendons and fat and everything and then was licking his bone clean (laughs) like a lollipop. And I thought, wow, that's the difference. That's how you eat chicken but no thanks, I'll stick to mine. (laughs) My concern is that that is a metaphor for how we in the West approach our Christianity. I'll take a little bit of God, I'll go to church, I'll sing some songs, I'll serve once a month on a road to maybe, maybe, but don't pressure me into it, thank you. I'll do that, but if things are difficult, or if life's hard, (laughs) the first thing to go is church. Oh, no, the first thing to go is serving, and then church, because they offended me, and they smell. I'm going to find another one. By the way, when I said they smell, I wasn't pointing at you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I worry. Is that, is that the state of our Christianity? Can't be, can it? I hope it's not. I don't want it to be. You know, in lots of places in the world, our brothers and sisters are experiencing persecution for their faith, being blown up on Easter Sunday, or having their heads chopped off on global television. Whereas me, I'd rather keep my head down than have it chopped off. I'd rather keep my faith to myself. I'd rather keep my money to myself and build my empire, my kingdom, my stuff. I'd rather live like that than be a radical, generous, open-hearted Christian my concern i see it in me and i hate it i I lead impact which is a a gap year for people wanting to grow in their faith in god and as part of impact training we had an evangelist visit us two three weeks ago and he thought it'd be a great idea to take our students on the streets and to go and speak to strangers and try to pray for strangers the students thought it was a great idea i went along for the ride (laughs) I thought, can I hide in a coffee shop while they do that? Well, we did it. We walked on the streets. We came back to the center. They shared their experiences. People had been able to pray for people. Others, someone had even led someone to Christ. I didn't have a story. kept my head down. I was expectant, just not willing to step out of my comfort zones. I'm expectant as long as it comes to me. (laughs) I don't want to talk to strangers because, quite frankly, if I was a stranger, I wouldn't want that. And I justified it in all kinds of different ways. That's not my gift. That's not my personality type. I don't really like doing that. Or it's for the students. It's not for me. (laughs) Really, it was just cowardice. I'm offended at myself. And I stand here. The church deserves better leaders than this. It does, actually, deserve better leaders than this. But the good news is it does have a better leader than this. Because Jesus is the real shepherd of us, isn't he? We're all just trying to follow him. And do you know what Jesus did? Well, consider Jesus' attitude towards us. I'll share this story as we finish. Jesus, on the night that he was arrested, before he was handed over to be crucified, he went to the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It was called to pray, and he said to his disciples, "Keep watch for me." And he went over and prayed. He strained after God. It's fair to say. He was sweating in prayer. He was going after God so much, wrestling with his father. Came back to his disciples to find them ready to go. No, they were asleep. They were asleep. And what would you do if you were Jesus? I know what I would do. You fell asleep. What are you doing? I'm about to die for the sins of the world. And you're asleep. You couldn't even stay watch for me for half an hour. Failure is the lot of you. And I would just left them there. So I would have done. What did Jesus do? He said to them, The Spirit is willing. I know. I know you want to. But the flesh is weak. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What's he doing? He's saying, I think in the best of you guys, you can do it. I'm sure, I know you want to do it, right? He believed the best. Even when there was nothing to show for it, he still believed the best. That's our God. I talk about resilience and we all sit there going, oh great, I'm not resilient. I'm a coward. So am I. But he loves us anyway. The Spirit's willing. I want it, God. For my flesh. Oh, so cowardly. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. Let us with confidence approach the throne, draw near the throne of God that we we may receive mercy and find grace. The only condition for approaching God is that you need mercy and you want to find grace. I I want that. And I'm encouraged when I consider the type of people that God uses in the Bible. Noah, he was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Jacob was a liar. Leah, no one wanted Leah. Joseph was abused by his brothers. Moses had a stutter. Gideon was too afraid, Samson was a womanizer, Rahab was a prostitute, David was an adulterer, Elijah was suicidal, Jonah ran away from God, Naomi was a widow, Peter denied Christ, Martha worried too much, Zacchaeus was too small, Paul was too religious, the disciples were too weak, and Lazarus was dead. And those are the people that God uses and writes about how he uses them in this book. The Christian life requires resilience. It does. But we've got a God who loves us just as we are and is able to lead us just as we are and able to make something out of this and that. <laughs> let, me read by, let me end by just reading you some lyrics from an old hymn. One of my favorite hymns. The lyrics go like this. Just as I am, without one plea, but that you but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I come anyway. (laughs) Just as I am, though thrown about with many a conflict and many a doubt, with fightings and fears within and without, O Lamb of God, I come anyway. I come. I come to the one who shed his blood for me so that I could approach the throne of grace with confidence that I would receive what I need because I need, we need. And the good news is, he's offering it for us. And he promises, says, come, just as you are. I'll make something of you. I'll make something of your life. Let's get the band up and I'll pray. Father, <coughs> Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you allow us to come to you just as we are. Now I pray, God, that you would take us, these loaves and fish, these dry bones, and you'd breathe on us. You'd multiply us, you'd add to us, you'd strengthen us, you'd encourage us, you'd empower us, because God, if not you, then who? Where else can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. Amen.